0: We have an exciting partnership to announce before we get into today's Scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt has been asked to join Reads Across America Radio, a 24-7 internet radio station where you can listen to veteran stories 24-7. You can find that on the iHeartRadio app. You can also find it on their website, readsacrossamerica.com. Or, the Scuttlebutt will be featured Friday nights at 9 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. If you don't know anything about Reads Across America, they're an incredible organization, all dedicated to honoring veterans uh, and, and those who uh, gave all in service to our country. Check out The Scuttlebutt on their radio station and all the other programs that they have on their 24-7 radio station, again, on iHeartRadio app or ReadsAcrossAmerica.org. Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Our mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. And I have a very exciting episode for you planned today. We have on joining us the author, Ian Fritz. He wrote the book, What the Taliban Told Me. Ian was in the Air Force from 2008 to 2013. He was an airborne cryptologic linguist. You might be thinking, what does that mean? Well, he was up in CM-130s, flying up above uh, Afghanistan, listening in on conversations. He learned Dari and Pashto, and he was able to uh, decipher and gain uh, actionable and usable intel uh, from the conversations he was listening in on. He's extremely passionate about words and the language, uh, and we have a really interesting conversation, uh, which I hope that you enjoy. Uh, Please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And you can always reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Please be sure to check out What the Taliban Told Me. You can find it on his website, ianfritz.com. Uh, you can also find it wherever books are sold. But if you have an independent bookseller in your region, go there and hopefully you'll get a copy. Uh, it's really a great read. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Enjoy the show. Joining you today is author and veteran Ian Fritz. You are the author of What the Taliban Told Me. Um, really excited to talk with you about this book and your service. Uh, Ian, love
1: for you to introduce yourself.
0: Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Sean. Uh, Yeah, I'm Ian Fritz. I uh, I was in the Air Force for five years, from 2008 to 2013. I was an airborne cryptologic linguist, which in normal English means that I learned a couple of languages and I uh, listened to the Taliban talk about things from the back of various planes within the Air Force Special Operations Community. Um, After I completed my enlistment, I studied biology in New York, and then I went to medical school in Pittsburgh. and since then, I have transitioned to writing and some other projects, but mostly writing full time.
0: Oh, great. So you spent some time here with us in Pittsburgh. I did. Yeah,
1: I uh, I don't know that I appreciated it as much as I should have while I was there. But since leaving, I have firmly come to promote Pittsburgh as the wonderful city that it is.
0: Oh, that's good news. Thank you for that. Uh, we'll we'll uh, It's a nice feather in our cap. Uh, mm-hmm. You are a direct support operator. And I say that now because any uh, non-veterans who may be listening in, we might say DSO or Dizzo. Uh, that's subscribed in your book. Uh, Dizzo is is the term, correct? hmm All right. Um, let's go back because at VBC, we sort of like to get that sort of history, uh, mm-hmm. find out a bit more about uh, why you decided to enlist at 18 into the Air Force. Um, what What was going on in your life at that time that you thought this is the path I
1: want to go. Sure. Uh, So I didn't get into college. Is the short answer to that question. Um, I didn't get into college for a lot of reasons. I grew up in a small town in North Florida and I worked a lot in high school and didn't pay enough attention to my studies and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But um, after I graduated, I I didn't really have much going on. I was a waiter at a a wonderful Chinese restaurant in the town I grew up in. But beyond that, I, I didn't really have much to do mm-hmm. i at some point in there i remembered that um a recruiter had come to my high school when i was in 10th grade an air force recruiter and he had talked about this job of an airborne cryptologic linguist and um he didn't really know what it was but he was a very good recruiter so that was uh, helpful and i said sort of wanted to study languages in some form or fashion um if i had gone to college so i i thought about that and i said well let's let's see if that's still a real thing for all I know, it's not, or he invented it, or it went away or something. Yeah. Um, and I went, I found the recruiter in my town, and lo and behold it, it is very much a real thing. And uh, he said, well, you have to lose 40 pounds first, um, because mm. i was very overweight, at least by the Air Force standards. So I did that. Uh, and then I went back and took some tests. And um, in February of 2008, I left for basic training.
0: Being a linguist is no joke, though. So it, it you know... It 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 takes an intelligent person to be bilingual, and in this play, in this case, it was both uh, Dari and and Pashto. Is that how you pronounce both of those?
1: Yeah, Dari uh, Pashto can be pronounced four different ways. So whichever way is more comfortable for you to say, um, like Afghans pronounce it differently, I pronounce it differently. Um, But yeah, the military does a very good job of training you. I will say that. Um, I I, yes, there's some innate ability required, I think, but the school where they train languages is a world-class institution.
0: So you weren't necessarily bilingual prior to joining the military?
1: No, no, no. Yeah. Um, there are, I think, a few people who work as linguists who, who do know a language coming in, mm-hmm. um, but it's probably upwards of 90% that they teach you a language. So, I mean, there are, I, I worked with plenty of people who, you know, grew up speaking Spanish and English, and there are definitely Spanish linguists in the military for sure. Um, but I don't think I knew a single Spanish linguist who was a native Spanish speaker. I, I think all the native Spanish speakers wound up learning another language. Um, because once you know, once you do, once you are bilingual, it's uh, surprisingly much easier, at least it was surprising to me, uh, mm-hmm. much easier to learn a, a third language or a fourth language or what you.
0: So you didn't come from like a military family. This wasn't something that you were brought up through.
1: No, uh, uh, not at all. Uh, my father was apparently in the army, um, but I, I don't know anything about that. I didn't really know him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had an aunt who was in the like the National Guard, I think. But um, beyond that, no, it was just the the most well the only way I saw or knew of to like get out of Lake City, Florida.
0: So uh tell me about, you know, you told your your parents or you told your mom and you, and and what did they think, your family, whenever you said, I'm I'm gonna go be a linguist with the Air Force. <laughs> was that sort of like, what?
1: What are you doing? Uh a bit of that. Um they had a feeling that I was big scary air quotes here, uh, that are not mine, but I was I was too smart. For the military because I, I think because I you know did come from a military family and BS yes, I had this aunt who was in the National Guard but she was a nurse and so like that's its own sort of specialized career field where you're just in medicine. Um they, they didn't know what they were talking about, right? They they had this concept of military probably of like grunts and marines and all these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so yes, they were very much uh not not sure that I was being serious, I guess. Right
0: uh did you have a choice when you d- got into the the the, the what you say linguist school is that what it's is that what it's called yeah, we call it language
1: school but, but, uh, you you don't uh, my recruiter told me that i did um he was wrong it's very much like needs of the at least of the air force maybe it's different for other branches but i i pretty much doubt that you you do get to fill out like a preference you know sheet they say you mm-hmm. know the top five languages you want to learn out of the 20 some odd languages that you know we want people to learn right now um I had never even heard of Dari which is mm-hmm. the first language I learned like when they told me I was going to learn Dari I literally said what is Dari mm-hmm. um, I had thought I might because my recruiter had told me oh you can choose I was like oh I want to learn Russian why I wanted to learn Russian I could not explain to you um I just thought I did for some reason
0: I guess maybe because at that, maybe even at that time, it's like, okay, well, I guess if a military is going up against somebody, Russia would maybe be a peer, like a peer enemy. So that.
1: Not, but I never was thinking about that sort of thing. I mean, I was, yeah, I was 18. I, it's not like I had read any Russian literature or anything, which I have now. And so it sort of makes more sense to me. But Mm -hmm. at the time, I think I just thought Russian was like somehow cool. Uh, (laughs) That's the language I wanted. Yeah. So what I'm
0: getting at here is that what position you were in, this uh, Adizo was, is extremely rare. I mean, we talk about on the mm-hmm. podcast like less than one half one percent serve in the military, mm-hmm. and if you start cutting down like the jobs and who serves in what capacity, to be uh, a linguist in the military is is extremely rare.
1: Yeah, um, I think there was a number thrown around when I was doing it that there were like eleven 1, hundred. Everyone linguists in the whole Air Force, something like that. Um, yeah. Shy of 2,000 for sure. And then, yeah. yes, the the job I did as a as a DISA or a direct support operator, that was an even you know smaller subset because of the special operations. And then, if you you really can, in my case, drill down quite quite deeply because my best friend and I were the only two linguists trained in the two languages we were trained in to fly on board the specific aircraft we flew in. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I, I've said it in an article that I published, I've said it in the book, and it's not meant to be you know, braggadocious, but it is just true that we were the only two people in the world who could technically do the very specific work that we did. Mm-hmm. Other people could have learned it for sure. It's not that we were, you know, the greatest, it's just that the timing of training and all these sorts of things turned out that way.
0: As you get out of your training, uh, how long did that take the the language school?
1: Uh, the first time was a year, so Dari is uh, it's forty seven weeks technically, but um, that washes out to a year with like vacation and training stuff. Um, my full training from the time I joined till the time I deployed was a little over three years. Oh, wow! And fitting two languages within that, did that
0: feel like crunch time? Uh, learning those they're they're not easy languages to learn.
1: Um, Pashto is, is quite a difficult language to learn for English speakers, but I fortunately learned that second. Dari, which Dari is, is functionally the same language as Farsi, which more people are familiar with, at least, um, you know, main language spoken in Iran. It, Farsi is, it looks really scary, right? It's written in an Arabic script, it's, you know, backwards from English, like all these sorts of things. It, it looks quite terrifying on its face it is a relatively simple language. Um, it doesn't have gender, right? So like Spanish, yeah. um, just on that front, I think Spanish is harder because you have to remember, this is male, this is female, all these sorts of things. Yeah. And, and the grammar in Farsi is really quite simple. Um, the language is incredibly beautiful, it's complex, it's ancient, you can do wonderful things in it, but it just so happens that like, at, at least compared to English, the grammar is much more straightforward. So, it, it is crunch timey insofar as language school, like by design, is you know, it's eight hours a day, five days a week. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. Um, it's a job. It's not. It, it's akin to college in the sort of you know scholastic effort of it, but That's it's not akin awesome. to college in that. In college, you can just say, "Oh, well, I don't want to go to class today." In the military, you can't really do that, right? <laughs> if you, even if you're sick, you have to go to sick call, and they decide, eh, "Nah, not." You can still go to class.
0: <laughs> So and you're still doing your your physical physical stuff as well. You're not just learning.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, language school there's it's not it's pretty lax, like like uh, band camp maybe. <laughs> <laughs> not no not dissimilar. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely still PT, but you know, it's three days a week. It's like mm-hmm. half an hour or something or other. I guess there is this sort of you know baseline requirement, but truly, like you're because it's eight hours a day of class, but then you might have two hours of homework Monday to Friday and six hours of homework for the weekend mm-hmm. and so you, you really kind of get to put most other things on the back burner which you know other the the school that you go to after language school is in uh, texas it's in west texas and it's at Goodfellow air force base and, and it's a um, cryptologic training school mm-hmm. and routinely our sergeants there would say things to the effect of like well you know you're not you know you're not on you're not in college anymore right you're not just like having a party like you were to labor school, and and they didn't know they'd never been there, but they had this concept of it because once you went back back to other places, it was much more like traditional military. Like yes, you do PT every morning and you march around these sorts of things.
0: Uh, going back to that original recruiter, you said that he was a very good recruiter, but it sort of struck something in you this idea of of linguist. But where did that original passion come from? Because, you know, I mean, I like speaking English. My, my wife is bilingual in German, um, but there has to be some level of passion for learning other languages or words on the page. Uh, did that start at an early age for you?
1: Yeah, I, I learned to read quite young. Um, mm. And so my mother grew up, English was not her first language. Um, mm. she, she grew up speaking French and Bambada because she grew up, in West Africa, and Mali, mm-hmm. uh, her parents were missionaries. So I, I, I did not. I, to this day, I do not know French or Bavada. Um I did not grow up speaking these languages. My brother and I learned them from my mother, but we, we did hear them all the time. And language was, a, you know, a, a big part of my mother and her family's lives because you know her and her sisters could still speak, obviously, which they did routinely when they didn't want me and my cousins and you know, other people to know what they were saying. Um, and I, I, I did always love reading. I think I've loved reading since I was, since, since I could read, since I was very, very young. Yeah. And so I think, I, I think at 18, I liked, I did like the idea of words without necessarily knowing what that means. Mm-hmm. I have a slightly better idea of it now. And, and I do love words. But yes, at the time, it was, it was somehow, somehow I think I knew that language could change the world, at least change my world.
0: I find it interesting what you just said that you, when your parents or, you know, your family wanted to not let you know what they were talking about. They spoke in a different language Mm -hmm. and that you'd be listening in on that. But this is sort of what your job also became is that you were listening in on, you know. Yeah,
1: I never thought of that. That's funny. Yeah.
0: Okay, so let's, let's flash forward. You get your, um, your deployment orders, uh, were you expecting where you were going, what you were about to do? Uh was there sort of an you were anticipating what that was going to be? Did you happen to know like what, what that was gonna be like?
1: Oh yes. Yeah. So so because as you know we talked about earlier, the, the linguist community is so small and special operation linguist community is so small, um, I absolutely knew you know what my work would be. Uh, in in, in broad strokes, right? Every mission Mm -hmm. is different. And by the nature of the work we did, that was just true for everyone. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I knew I was going to, there were only two places you could go in Afghanistan to do our job. You either went to Bagram Air Force uh, Air Base, which is in uh, North Afghanistan, like closer to Kabul, um, or you went to Kandahar, uh, which is down in the Southwest area of the country. It was up in the air, which of those I would go to for a little bit, and then it was decided, you know, before I left, I would go to Kandahar, because that's where the planes I was trained on were stationed out of. And, you know, the people who had gone before me, knowing with other dizzos who had already done the job, said, you know, you can expect this, you can expect that. Maybe some things will change here and there, but um, I had a pretty good idea of what the job would look like.
0: So, like, a typical day was get up, prep, uh, get on the plane, and start listening?
1: Um, yeah, typically to get up, prep, you're you you have you, flying, right? You have like a weather brief and a mission brief and an intelligence brief and all these sorts of things. And then you got to the plane and probably about anywhere from one to two hours after you started your day, you do take off. Um, Afghanistan is not a big country. It's, you know, smaller than Texas or about the same size as Texas, but the planes I was flying in are, are C-130s, so they're not like jets that we're used to flying when we fly commercially. They don't quite go so fast. So it would be more like get on the plane, fly 30 minutes to two hours to wherever I was going, and then start listening.
0: Can you tell me about, like, life on the plane? You're on a plane for quite a long time. Are You you know, do you have to be at station for X amount of time? Is it, there's bathroom
1: breaks? Is it cold? It, uh, it's cold. It's for sure cold. Um, it depends a little bit on the plane, but the specific planes I was on when I was at Kandahar were... The, at the time, there were the MC-130Ws or whiskeys. Mm-hmm. Um, so all C-130s are just cargo planes. That's what they were originally designed for. And then throughout the years, the military has sort of uh, outfitted them to do different tasks. So some of them are still cargo planes, but they're like they deliver specific types of cargo to specific types of place places. And then other ones are, they're now what are known as gunships. So the most famous gunships are the AC-130s. Yep. I was flying on was sort of a prototype of the next generation of AC-130s. So I was on mc 130 ws which still just big C-130 cargo plane. In the back, there's some stations where we, where we would sit. So like my station is in between two other stations. And then it's like kind of a big cargo bay. Um, in transit, the, they, you know, for the most part, it, when we're flying from Kandahar to wherever our mission was going to be, I could probably just like not be doing a whole lot, mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Um, sometimes, you know, if it's really, you really rough day the day before you go take a nap in the back of the plane, but other times, you know, you're flying and it's like, you know, that you're not gonna be flying that long and there's a lot of activity where you're going, so you're just listening the whole time. And then once, once we would get to our missions, you know, that's where overhead and orbiting you fly in just a small orbit, then it's, yeah, your headset's on and you just listen, 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 listen for as long as you're there, which could be a couple hours, it could be seven hours, it could be a couple hours you leave and go get more fuel and come back and it's a few hours more. Mm-hmm. Um, but Yeah. So at that point, by
0: the time of your first mission, you were uh, certified, like, uh, uh, certified in those languages? Like, you, there was no uh, language mm-hmm. barrier. Once you started listening, you knew what was going on.
1: There's no language barrier. There's maybe um, a fear barrier, adrenaline barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. There's there's a technological barrier. So, right, a language school, even for Dari and Pashto, which aren't, um learning them is a little bit different than learning, let's say, Spanish, right? Mm-hmm. You're learning Spanish or Arabic or even Russian. There's TV, there's all kinds of news, there's music, right? There's all kinds of books that have already been translated. You have a lot of resources. Mm -hmm. Farsi, Dari, you have a good amount. Pashto, you like basically don't have anything because it's not a widely spoken language. So when you are studying those sorts of things, right, we spend a lot of our time learning from the news and learning Mm -hmm. from um, sort of pre-generated texts, like our professors would write out texts and these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very uh, academic Way of learning it, and then you go and you have guys who are in the middle of a fight or who are screaming at each other, and they speak very differently. You and I would speak very differently if we were in the middle of a fight right now, the way we're talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, well, I, I might technically know all the words that they were saying, right, in the the noise of you know i'm listening to a radio that is not a very powerful radio, maybe, and they're screaming and multiple people are talking and these sorts of things. Those could get in the way, but as far as actually knowing language, yeah, by the time I deployed. I had, I had been there quite
0: well. And you were, you weren't really sort of dipped into the shallow end on your first mission. Can you lead us through uh, what that, what happened in your first mission?
1: Yeah. So I, it's a uh, very rare, relatively speaking, mission in the history of war in Afghanistan. But we were told we were going over um, to a not, uh, not nice area of Afghanistan, or more explicitly, an area where there have been a lot of really Big battles, like many medals of honor, have been awarded in this area, and we sort of knew that there was a large um, segment of army of soldiers who were, you know, at a forward operating base, which is basically just like a small outpost that they've established, just kind of in the boondocks docks of Afghanistan. And we knew that they had been receiving threats that they expected to be attacked, um, but they really they were uh, they were not overrun, fortunately that day, but they a huge attack. It's estimated like 300 Taliban, which is a very large amount for a, a modern day battle um, attacked them that day. So uh, six Americans died uh, ultimately by the end of that battle. And it's estimated that somewhere between 50 and up to hundred Taliban died. Um, and it was, I mean, there's a video. Uh, I, I, there's a link in the back of the book because there is a video actually, because there happened to be an embedded reporter. And it, it looks, it's very grainy, but it does look like something out of a movie in that, you know, there's huge bombs going off. There's all kinds of just constant, constant firing of guns from the Taliban, from American side. You see guys who, like, an American caught a bullet, but it got stopped by, like, something he had in a pocket. Like, not even his bulletproof vest, like, something he had in a pocket in his jacket. You know, you read about guys who, like, had a book and stopped the bullet or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, it was... It was that was overwhelming. That's why I had to talk about the fear and adrenaline barrier, mm-hmm. um, right? Because even if even if I understood everything they were saying, which I didn't, because it was so loud and so convoluted, uh, my heart rate probably didn't drop below one hundred and twenty for like four hours. Mm-hmm.
0: So after that first mission, was it kind of a uh, holy crap? What did I get myself into? Or was it like, okay, this is the job, and you know, to take care of
1: business. Um, mm, I think it was more of the latter. It was more of it was the job because I had the sort of naivete and the, well, I won't call it bravery. But probably just the stupidity of being twenty-one. Turned uh, mm-hmm. twenty-two a few days later. I don't. I think if I think if you know, I'd gone through all the training. I went through. And when like, I did that that first mission, now it probably would have been a little bit of what have I done? Mm-hmm. But at the time it was, there was a lot of bravado that I'd spent three years, you know, training. So I really was wanting to go and do the job. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that, and and I I truly, in retrospect, I think I was to some extent overwhelmed. And so I just didn't process like what had happened. And I was like, well, I have to, I I flew the next day, right? Like that's the job fly a lot. So the next day and okay, I'm gonna keep doing this.
0: What was communication like? Because you weren't just listening, right? You were you were taking in what what you were getting, but also you had to communicate with the, you know, with the pilot. Uh did you help to aim ordinance and call out positioning? And was there some of that as well?
1: So in that that specific mission, no, because it was so crazy. Like there were fighter jets dropping bombs and these sorts of things. Um yeah, the nature of the job, right? You, you are, I always say, and, and it's woefully inaccurate. So, thank you for pointing that out. But yeah, you're not just listening. You're obviously telling people what you hear, because like otherwise, what well, would be the point? Um, the majority of that is focused on telling people what you hear because you're hearing planning, usually. So, you know, the Taliban are saying, hey, we're going to put a bomb here, or hey, we're planning an ambush here, or hey, we're bringing a weapon here, or hey, we're going to, we're in the middle of a battle, like move from point A to B, all those sort of stuff. Um, sometimes, and this is dependent on like what plane you're on and the kind of mission you go on and no just chance, but sometimes you could say, yeah, hey, they're over here. We need to shoot them over there for sure. Um, you you spend most of the time, you don't actually talk to the pilot, you spend most of the time talking to um, navigators. So navigators, that's the title of the officer who has that position on a plane. They don't only navigate the plane though, I think, you know, once upon a time that was true, but now they're also responsible for communicating off of the plane, So you have to talk to other aircraft in the area, you have to talk to the people on the ground in the area and they're responsible for that. So I I spent most of my time communicating what I was hearing to the navigator so that the navigator could then tell, you know, the uh, relevant or interested parties like, hey, the Dizzy was hearing this and the Dizzy was hearing that, like be advised or hey, you're about to get attacked or whatever the case may be.
0: Something you hit pretty hard in the Atlantic article is that the uh, the technological uh, advance that we have or had over the Taliban is that we come in and we have that network. We have linguists listening in. We have navigators. We have people communicating all through the We have multiple planes. We have multiple units. You know, this apparatus is highly uh, advanced, but also... Uh, incredibly complex in comparison to what the Taliban was doing. Can you speak a bit to that comparison? Like what was the, what were the Taliban using to communicate with each other?
1: Uh, Pretty much just walkie talkies. Like that's Mm -hmm. not um, an exaggeration. That's what they are. They're they're called push to talk radios. They're just walkie talkies that maybe have a more powerful battery than the ones we played with as a kid. Uh, Maybe they don't. (laughs) Um, You can buy, well, now Radio Shack doesn't exist, but you know, at the time I remember I bought sort of, small radios for a road trip because my friends and I, you know, we had a caravan of like six cars and we had radios that we used to talk to each other and we could talk from a mile away or something. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, what the Palabans doing all the time. They had some sophistication, right? They have sort of relay stations peppered throughout the country. Um, They have, you know, they, they communicate in other ways that I didn't have anything to do with for sure. But yeah, in the middle of a battle, they're, Literally, like pushing a button on a walkie-talkie to talk to their friend and say, you know, their co-fighter, say, hey, you know, I need you to do this, I need you to do that. This sort of thing's happening. Whereas, yeah, we are using encrypted radios and maybe satellites. We're talking to satellites. Maybe we're talking to somebody few hundred miles away, thousands of miles away, right? A lot of drone warfare is mm-hmm. a huge part of Afghanistan, and so drone operators are in Nevada, right? and we're we're talking to them. With whatever the delay is, right? Like however many seconds that delay is, mm-hmm. but the Taliban's not talking to anybody outside of, you know, who's within the power of their walkie talkie distance from them.
0: So were you picking up on the walkie talkie signals or could it, could the plane, did the plane have advanced enough technology that it was picking up on them actually talking to each other like back and forth?
1: But you're listening, it's, it's, um, probably the most app comparison is like you know like a cb radio like something yeah something. Mm-hmm. it's like that like anybody could hear that right you just have to you just have to tune in basically mm-hmm. it, it's pretty much that so i'm I, yeah i'm listening to them talk back and forth in real time right you know? and that's just because they don't yeah they don't have the encrypted radios like we do they could technically anybody could have like tuned in to what my plane was saying but all you would hear is just scrambled audio
0: yeah After the chaos of that first mission, at what point sort of during your deployment, did things sort of become like, I've heard this already, or, you know, a month later, it's sort of like, they're talking in circles or we're not really like getting anything from them.
1: I mean, pretty yeah, probably a month in. So my first deployment was three and a half months, I think, um, yeah, you fly. 20 days out of the first month or something and because it's hours of listening and and there's you know there's not a fight there's not a battle like there's i never was in another battle like that first one. i was in never was in other battles for sure nothing like that and when you're not when they're not when you're not about you still have to listen because because you never know when they're going to talk about something like yeah i see the americans over there oh, okay i gotta know about that um and it is it's just by nature repetitive it's no different than you know if somebody could listen to my crew and I talking, we talked about the same stupid things all the time. We try and talk about new stuff, you yeah, know, we try and talk about the news or whatever, but um it, it by I think just with human nature is to be repetitious, asking how your friends, how your family, what's going on today, these sorts of things. So quite quickly, yeah.
0: That that's a very interesting point because you know it's 18 to 21, 22 year olds listening in on roughly the same age, if not maybe a little older with the Taliban. And, and I'm sure it's very interesting. It'd be like, it'd be like you being in the locker room, maybe at high school, and you're listening in on the jocks talk about the the theater kids. And it's like, it's two different sort of conversations, two different types of people, but it's, it's very similar in sort of what they are chatting about. And, And, you know, in the article, you mentioned, there's a lot of BS, there's still, there's still guys in a way. So it brought this human element, I'm sure to this enemy that, uh, you didn't know a lot about going in
1: yeah certainly so I mean there there were people you know who did my job a were older than me were 30 or in the younger 30s but but it tends to it tends to be quite younger yeah you don't you don't get a lot of 40 um, year old bizos that I'm aware of and it is I think it's more like jocks talking about jocks because I am not a jock and I wasn't then, but you you get this idea of yourself as one maybe, right, by virtue of being in the military, especially because I was, I technically worked in special operations. You think of yourself, you know, as this is cool um, jock-esque personality, but it is a very different one, a different type, you know, maybe it's football players talking about baseball players or something if, if mm-hmm. we want to take that metaphor forward because, yeah, they're talking about fighting in a vastly different way than I'm talking about fighting. Um Ooh, and, can you
0: dive can you dive into that a little bit? They're talking about it vastly different. How is that?
1: Well, because I'm talking about, right? So on uh MZ130 whiskeys, the planes I flew on, you know, my entire first deployment, we um uh, it's called a gunship, it was a prototype for a gunship. We didn't have a gun, we had missiles, right? So mm-hmm. if I'm talking about if I'm if I'm you know shooting the wind with my friends, okay, fine, that's probably the same. But when you start talking about fighting i'm talking about dropping missile on or i'm talking about asking the drone to drop a missile or i'm talking about a fighter jet comes in like this first battle i was in and drops like a literal bomb you know or uh, artillery comes in from somewhere the taliban talks about it and they're like yeah i'm gonna use my ak-47 that's 30 years old the taliban talks about it and they're like i'm gonna use my russian surplus you know miss rocket launcher right that, mm-hmm literally was used to fight soviets potentially Mm -hmm. Um, i'm going to talk about laying an id which is something that a guy made in his house that you know maybe he's lost a few fingers making because it's his name id right improvised explosive device is something that somebody just made up so they're, they're talking about fighting we're all talking about fighting but the fighting that they're having to do is you know much harder than the fighting that we're having to do
0: right but no less deadly obviously
1: well, more deadly for them, right? How many Afghans died in the war than how many Americans died.
0: Right. At, uh, was it difficult over the hours that you're listening? Uh, one, you have to pay so close attention. Um, I am absolutely guilty. My wife says, you're not listening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's after 10 minutes. So <laughs> so as you look at like hours of listening, how, how hard is it to discern between Intel, the actionable or usable Intel, and just chit-chat?
1: um not that hard uh for, for a for a couple of reasons so you know a guy says hey how's it going you hear someone say that eh could be could be benign could be whatever maybe i keep listening and find out you know they says, hey how's it going oh it's good you know uh, i saw my uncle yesterday where he says oh it's good you know so-and-so died yesterday mm, okay how'd that guy die like i need to listen to that but if they're talking and they're just talking about traffic or the weather or whatever, I don't really care. Um, mm-hmm. if they're talking about moving, like going from point A to point B, to be very, very clear, right? Like not only the Taliban are not the only people who are using radios. So yeah. On average day-to-day Afghans are they use radios for communication because they're you know cheaper than cell phones, easier than cell phones, more reliable than cell phones, what have you. Um, there's also you know, construction workers who are using radios. And, Whatever convoys, but you you get a sort of a sort of sixth sense for it that you know because you're doing it so long because you spend so many hours you hear someone say something maybe it's the tone of their voice or maybe you like recognize their voice sometimes um, how how yeah often how they're saying something you can say oh well okay I'm not really worried about that or I can come back to that later or what have you um, the focusing I think is built in because at least in my case you know in many ways the the fact that my first fight was this you know huge battle um cemented how important it was to focus Mm -hmm. yes i like wasn't going into that ever again or anything like, like remotely approaching that but it was very much like it was no longer an option for me that that sort of thing could happen it was like a very real Occasion. Okay, well, that might happen again. So, um, let's let's pay attention.
0: Uh, I'm going to go nerd here for a second, but I am likening this to like Professor X putting on the, the cerebro <laughs> and hearing hearing the thousands of voices and and picking out the the small bits that you need to. Um, I just I have to uh, you know give you a pat on the back for the a massive amount of talent I'm sure it takes also in this position to be able to to pull out what what you needed um, because it was important to get this information to save lives so you had to be on point constantly I'm sure you were exhausted after every day
1: no uh, I mean some days right like I, I flew plenty of flights there was no there was no battle there was no fighting mm-hmm. so tired I wouldn't say I was exhausted as opposed to yeah when I there's a fight at the end of that you're exhausted um i mean it it's sort of it, it's i would imagine or not even imagine like if i had to go and act on a stage for 30 minutes mm-hmm. at the end of that i would be drenched in sweat i would be utterly exhausted i would need to go take a four hour nap and maybe i don't know like I, i'm not an actor I don't, I don't think i could be one but maybe if i did that every day for a little while you know then after a month two months, like i'm not gonna be exhausted at the end of it early in you know, the appointment, first appointment, yeah, I think maybe this wasn't true for some people I worked with, but I highly doubt it. You're, you are really quite, you know, um, broken down at the end of each mission, but then you go to sleep, wake up, and you sort of refresh. Human beings are fascinating that way. Um, I, I, I honestly, I don't, I was not, you know, I was good at my job, but there are people who were so much better than me, and for them, I do think it was like a massive talent, like I think that they had some sort of next level skill that I I don't claim to understand.
0: You're speaking my language, Ian. I don't know if you read my bio, but I have a background in acting. So I know that like being on stage yeah, that first couple of times, it was like, oh man, you get off and, and you're just mentally wiped. You know, there's there's a performance there, there's an energy, there's a heart rate that goes up. Mm-hmm. Uh, diving into a bit of this sort of listening in to people, uh, do you think it's sort of akin to like reading a diary? Did you feel just not, was there some moral feeling of like i'm listening in on personal conversations and that doesn't feel right
1: no because i don't mm, i don't think it's diaristic right Mm -hmm. i think i do think that reading somebody's diary or journal or whatever you want to call it would be let's say invasive. we're talking about morality because i think that's a good word for that Mm -hmm. but i think you know if you if you're sitting in a coffee shop and listening to people talk is that invasive? I don't know. I was I was just doing I was doing that differently, but like not you, you could take a, a very powerful microphone mm-hmm. into a coffee shop and you could record the audio and you could listen to every conversation there. Yeah. Right. So I don't because I don't like private. I guess I never thought of them as private conversations. Uh for whatever reason. No.
0: Interesting. Any any reason you didn't feel that way?
1: I mean, the taliban most certainly knew that we could listen to them i think that's mm-hmm. hard for sure right they didn't they spoke in not like full-on code uh right just by virtue of speaking posture it's quite hard but right? not that many people speak posture not that many americans anyway um so they you know they had code words whatever we knew them all so it wasn't really all that helpful for them but yeah it, yes they they wouldn't want me to hear that, so I guess by by that definition, it is private, right? They wouldn't want me to hear what they're saying because by hearing what they're saying, I may be preventing them from accomplishing their goals. Mm-hmm. But it's not necessarily the case that they were talking about something that they wouldn't want anyone else to hear, and that to me, that's the definition of private mhm- uh and, and maybe i'm just like creating some sort of moral escape route for myself i don't know but no i, I never i never felt of it was that, that sort of listening and as a civilian myself you know it,
0: we're sort of under sort of the assumption of what we thought of the taliban the, the you know these guys who sort of fought in the mountains um but in that same vein how intelligent did you feel these conversations were? And I'm just trying to understand, sort of like what the stereotype in our civilian mindset is of the Taliban. Like, when you listened in on them, uh, was it was it different than that?
1: Hmm. I find the word intelligence to be complicated here because of the um, because of the fact of education in Afghanistan. Gotcha. I, I I I don't think you're wrong. I'm not even saying you for using that word. I think mm-hmm. it's a hard question to ask, mm-hmm. and I don't know how to. But but let's just say I'll use the answer and say that it's not that, that they were dumb, right? They mm-hmm. weren't. I think it's you know um, without swearing. You know there are lots of epithets that we use for the Taliban or that we use for ISIS, right? People who. Um, Fornicate with goats without swearing, right? Uh, these are these are many Americans' conception mm-hmm. uh, of them. And that is not the case, right? Like mm-hmm. if you, Afghanistan, so Dari and Pashti, right? They're, they're very old languages. Um, Farsi is, which is the same as Dari, is famous for some of the greatest poetry ever written, right? So Rumi, plenty of people heard of Rumi. Rumi wrote in Farsi. He maybe he was born in Afghanistan, actually, like modern day Afghanistan. Um, you know, the you could absolutely hear the Taliban reciting poetry to one another. Mm-hmm. Is it like really good poetry? I don't know. About it, but <laughs> they're not necessarily just these sort of like knuckle draggers, I guess would be a very good word for it. Mm-hmm. Um I I, you know, at the same time, I'm not listening to anybody talk about philosophy, but how often do you talk about philosophy with your friends, particularly when like the Majority of the reason that you're talking to your friends is because you're trying to figure out how to fight a war. Uh, right? Maybe, maybe when you go back and like after you like we're doing right, you debate the philosophy or something. other but in the midst of it, like, mm-hmm. why would you do that? That seems like a strange time for that. Um, I, I, have I answered your question. I'm I trying.
0: think so. Yeah, because I I I I think that there's a public perception, and I and certainly I feel like, uh, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but certainly one of the reasons for writing the book and you know what the Taliban told me it you know we I think I, you know if I civilian I go to the store store I pick up this book I see it and I'm thinking you know well what what am I going to get from this story what am what am I going to understand about the Taliban that I may have a preconceived notion about that this may change this may change my mind about the human element that we that we spoke about a bit earlier of like you know the, the the personal conversations or the conversations the Taliban was having that you were able to to sit in on in a way. Um, how did it maybe change even your mind of of what the who the Taliban were?
1: Yeah, that so I mean that is one of if not the main points of the of the book and and the, you said the word and it's just a word the suffix with the humanity of it, mm-hmm. right? I. Throughout history, and there's a very good reason for this. But the nature of war is that you dehumanize your enemy. It makes it much easier to kill people. Um, it's necessary for boosting morale. It's necessary for modern day nationalism. You you do. It's very difficult to think of an enemy as human and then kill them in the same way that you must kill your enemy, right? Um, but it is also very very difficult to listen to an enemy talk. For many many hours and not hear that humanity, um, absolutely difficult if not impossible. Mm-hmm. And what you do with that knowledge, right? That is entirely up for grabs. What I do with that knowledge is very different from what other people have done with that knowledge. But I, I do. I would be hard pressed to imagine a human being who was. Assuming you were born with the, cap, the the faculty of empathy, right? Assuming you were not an actual like medical sociopath. If you listen to people talk for a long enough time, you're gonna find something about that person to uh, to understand them as human. Mm-hmm.
0: Was that empathy a liability in being able to do your job?
1: In my case, it became one. Uh, well, yeah, yes. So, in my case, it became one. Um, I ultimately stopped doing my job because that empathy prevented me from uh, not wanting to kill myself functionally, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was able to do my job while I was actively doing it. So when I say it, it's like a complicated yes, no, but I, I quit doing it. But while I was still active and while I was still employed, I, you know, managed to do my job because I didn't want anybody to get hurt. Sort of things. So it was incredibly difficult and like I had to stop when I stopped. Um, so eventually, but then I, I, yeah, I couldn't do it anymore. And like an overall majority of the people who did my job um, had the same Conclusion that yeah this is not tenable
0: yeah there's a lot of burnout there's a high turnover um uh when you got out did you feel writing the book was some level of releasing that releasing a, a, a therapy in a way
1: oh, well so I mean I got out in 2013 uh, hmm. so I it, it I wrote the book two years ago so I guess eight years after the fact I wrote it. Mm-hmm. um i got out and uh wanted to go into medicine for that reason okay I wanted that that was writing a book never crossed my mind um and we can talk about like why i wrote this book later if you want but, but no that was never a thought in my mind my thought was to go into medicine to somehow correct that um to at the time i thought it was possible to you can't undo killing anybody, right, um, but you could maybe balance it out, mm-hmm. which I don't actually think is true anymore, but at the time, that's what I thought, and so 100%, that's why I got out to go, I got out and went to study biology immediately, so that I could just, that was the fastest way for me to go to medical school and become a physician.
0: So, you know, there was eight years there before you started writing, and like you said, let's let's dive into that, why why decide to write the book?
1: So I didn't decide to write the book. Um, Someone asked me to write the book. What I did decide to write was what you referenced earlier. Um, There's an essay in the Atlantic um, that came out a couple of days after you know the fall of Kabul, but basically after we had this horrific withdrawal from Afghanistan, right? And the Taliban had recaptured the whole country, 98% of the whole country or something. Um, so that that was 2021 and the, the sort of Afghanistan as like a country started sort of, the Taliban are getting control earlier in that year. Like I think most media, like it was a big deal, August, whatever, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th something it was, um, that was a huge deal. It was all over every headline. In the months preceding that, you would see stories here and there that was happening, but you know, I'm more invested in this than an average person is. And so I knew that this was coming and I had a lot of feelings about that. And what I've taken to thinking is that I I had a lot of feelings about my feelings about that. Um, And that, I I wrote that down because I had like, I have never known whether I admitted it or not, I've never known a better way to get out my feelings and to understand what I'm feeling than to write. Otherwise, I just get trapped in these circles in my head. Um, So I, I wrote this essay for no one for nothing other than to like my own sort of peace of mind. But then as... The, the Taliban was taking back more and more of the country, I felt that, you know, maybe somebody else could benefit from reading this. And so with a lot of help from my partner and some, from some professors I had in medical school, you know, they helped me edit this essay and I sent it in, and they were gracious enough to help me refine it further and then, and then publish it. Um, when that came out, it, you know, quote unquote, went viral and a lot of people read it, which I'm very grateful for. And my now literary agent uh, was one of those people. Um, actually, one of his clients told him to read it, and he did read it. And he said he got my contact information from The Atlantic, mm-hmm. and he called me and he said, "You ever thought about writing a book?" And I said, "Absolutely not." He <laughs> said, "You should think about writing a book." And I said, "Give me a few days," um, and I started talking about it with my partner. And said, "Well, okay, I'll give it a shot." And I called him back and I said, "Sure. Um, how do I write a book?" And he said more or less you'll figure it out and and i did and i wrote
0: it wow that's and i'm sure that that was its own mountain to climb you said that you wrote this hoping that it would help people who were you hoping to help with it the essay originally
1: the essay uh, i i don't know that i was hoping if i said help i there was a mistake in my part i don't know that was something to help anybody. but i was hoping to help, anybody. I was hoping to help or rather, I was hoping that other people could could learn something from it, or could mm-hmm. see something from it. Um, to my mind, right, and this is a complicated thing of like, because I wrote it, I know all the stuff that is good, but that is feeding it that like isn't written on the page. Yeah. But to my mind, the the there were two overwhelming points of that essay, which is like one, you don't know that the Taliban are like they're humans, and they're complicated, and two, we as a country lost this war like many, many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought both of those things were important. I probably think one of them is more important than the other, which is that we, you know, spent, probably never should have been in Afghanistan in the first place, but the 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 latter 10 years and like the fact that, you know, the Taliban took all the time and money and the Taliban took it back anyway. And in 2011, when I was deployed, I and anybody I was working with could have told you that was gonna happen. Like we absolutely knew that that would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was sort of what was like wildly frustrating about it was the news was, you know, how could this have happened? Like how was this possible? And it's like, I, it's, it's very self-evident a very long time ago.
0: Was there, over the course, it's about 20 years, a long time for the the war in Afghanistan, but do you feel sort of in the higher ups that there was just never an understanding, especially given your sort of special, uh, the the job that you had and, what you were able to understand more about not just the Taliban but the culture that there was just too much of a cultural divide and not enough attempting to understand what their needs were.
1: Um, who the Taliban's needs or like Afghanistan's needs? Afghanistan's partly, um, I do think that. Right, at some point it was offic- it was policy official or unofficial to to carry out nation building mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. Um, that part was incredibly misguided because the nation building that America engages in is necessarily American nation building mm-hmm. or at the very least necessary Western democratic republicanism. Uh, and that, yeah, was 100% there are Afghans who desire that, right? Um, that's probably a pretty small minority. Um, which is, uh, it seems ultimately rooted in just like pragmatism <laughs> that if you can go and read. Um, there's a, a very smart and very dedicated journalist by the name of Anand Paul, who has written a number, he wrote a book and he's also written a number of articles about, right, if you go to rural Afghanistan, around the time of the fall, right, around the time of our withdrawal, how taking over everything, a lot of people, a lot of women are like, pretty okay with this, if not happy, because ultimately means that there's not fighting anymore. Do they think the Taliban is a good entity and that the Taliban should be in charge of Afghanistan? Absolutely not, right? The Taliban are not good for mankind, but neither is war. And like one of those things winds up killing a bunch of people an awful lot of the time. Um, And we didn't, yeah, we, to circle back to the question at hand, like we didn't address that enough that like, yeah, cool. You want to do the nation building, but to do that, you'd have to like tear down a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, people don't want that. very <laughs> few people want that in their day-to-day life, Um, especially if they're living in the places where everything gets torn down. You look at like the city of Kabul. Yeah, maybe lots of people want it there, but that's because they're not having it torn down. Yeah.
0: As you expanded the essay into the book mm-hmm. and sort of fleshed out a much, much more, uh a wider birth for everything that involved your story. Mm-hmm. It, having someone learn something from just the essay, which is sort of sort of like a, an appetizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone, like I said, someone comes into a store to pick up your book, What the Taliban Told Me. What do you hope that they can learn from this?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. I do think it's important to learn wherever one can. It's from my book, I'll be very grateful, but um, to learn about the nature, or at least part of the nature of war, right? In the current, like currently right now, current world events, there's at least two like pretty awful wars happening. Uh, and a lot of people talk about those wars and I'm, I don't like, not everyone can go to war, nor should they, <laughs> very few people should go to war, Maybe we know them, but there are wars, people have gone to war, maybe we should listen to some of those people. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be completely wrong. I think other people are wrong. Whatever. But as you said, you know, 1% of Americans maybe served in the military. Uh, so 99% of them didn't. And how many of them have any real understanding of what the war looks like to people who are in that war? In my case, I'm hopeful that I'm providing to you, you know, my viewpoints on that war as well as the viewpoints of, like, the other people in that war, which is which is not often or not always or not enough appreciated. And so you can see, well, okay, yeah, maybe a war is a good idea insofar as like the Taliban is a bad idea, right? The Taliban is not a good organization and we shouldn't get rid of them. But also, can we do anything about that? And It's like fighting a war the right answer to that. Mm -hmm. That's a different question. They have like multiple different answers. So I, I, I want people to be able to see as much as they can about what it means to be in a war for as many people as possible, like as as many of the sides of that war that there are, because there are more than two sides in every war, right? And I'm hopeful that I talked to at least at least a few of them.
0: You're hoping that it 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 starts a conversation and helps people who know nothing about war. Maybe will will listen to yourself like a veteran who's been there, who's heard it, who's seen it, uh, and can gain some wisdom from that experience
1: even if it's not wisdom, because, like, to say that I have wisdom, I don't know, but some curiosity, I think, right. that, Like, mm-hmm. you, you know, maybe you read my book, and, and the ultimate hope I would have is that that makes you want to go learn more. Right? right? It's like, I, I'm not anywhere here enough of an expert on, like, anything. But, yeah, if you, if you read that and you want to find out more, you want to find out, like, yeah, okay, why do some, like, a lot of women in rural Afghanistan, like, why are they pro, pro-Taliban insofar as they are pro, like, not fighting anymore? Right? right. Or, like, why does the Taliban exist? Like, who's funding them, and like, why did we go about this war? These sorts of things. I think that you know, anytime anybody can be, can find something that will want make them want to learn more, then like that is a great thing. And hopefully, this book can do some of that.
0: Spoken like a true educator. I like that. Uh, how did it feel finishing the book? I know, guys, at the time of us releasing this podcast, uh, the the book will have been out for maybe a week. Um, how did it feel just getting that out there? And, and I'm sure, like I've written some things in my life, not nearly a book, but I know that when I re- write something personal, I sort of feel like you're bearing your soul a little bit, and that can that can be a little off-putting. At least for me, it felt that way.
1: Yeah, I perhaps have less shame than most people, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I I do wonder, like if I had, you know, tried to write this book right after I gotten out. I think it would have been more painful or I would have felt more felt more of this barrier in my soul. But, you know, eight years later, it's like, these are things I consciously and unconsciously was thinking about and were struggling with or ruminating on for a very long time. And so it, it sort of felt like, okay, it's out of me to some extent. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I, I don't, I'm, I think I'm very lucky in that I don't care what people know about me. Um, I do not answer like any question about me in real life or in the book or whatever, as long as it's not classified. Um, and because I think that people not being able to do that because of whatever reasons that they have, you know, is not making the world a better place. And that if more of us can somehow feel encouraged to be more open about more things, then it's probably that good.
0: Can you can you define for me your definition? of hearing and listening it might be very basic, but I'm just thinking- No, no, they're, they're different
1: words. I I, I um, had to argue about this with my editor at the Atlantic um, <laughs> that they're actually very different words, right? One of them involves paying attention and one of them just involves sort of passivity, right? If you are, you're, you're sort of, if you're hearing, I, I hear the birds outside my window, I hear construction or whatever, I hear my dog walking in my house, I'm talking to you, so I don't care about any of that. Mm-hmm. I'm listening to you, right, um, and I don't, yeah, maybe there's a noise or whatever, but listening listening is, an, is, a, is a conscious act of attention, and um, coincidentally, I've been reading about a lot of Iris Murdoch recently, uh, she's a brilliant British philosopher, and she has this idea that um, paying attention is sort of is a requirement for love, mm-hmm. uh, and that also it's like probably where any idea of prayer comes from. Like prayer is just like focused attention, right? If, if you're really, truly listening to something or someone or something, uh, you're giving them all of your attention, which means that you're like also giving them some part of yourself and hopefully getting some part of them back.
0: I think the, the last question I have for you uh, is you look back at Ian, who was 18, entering the Air Force, going into this very crazy world uh what did you as you got out what did you learn about yourself when you left the military
1: when i left or since i left
0: well those are two different things that's true uh i I think
1: it it, it,
0: i i'm i'm almost more interested in now since you left because when you left you were also as we sort of talked about you were in a different place when you first got out so since you left and you reflect on all of this, what do you feel like was the most important lesson you learned, or a lesson that you learned?
1: Um, I'll try and answer both. So since then, like currently me now, sitting you're talking to you, I do think the most the most important lesson is, um, and I think I'm constantly keep trying to learn with all these books and talking about Iris Murdoch, and um, is how rare and still wildly important connecting to other humans is hmm. and that there are an awful lot of ways to do that i think yeah i mean maybe you get hold certain ways of connecting to other humans and turns out one of them might just be sitting in a plane listening to them talk And you know, like who to thunk right um the the thing that i i probably could confidently say I, I learned when i left or i'd already learned when i got out right um is that I was capable of so much more than I ever thought. Like, I I sort of look back now and I'm like, yeah, how did I learn those things or do that job? Or, you know, some of it was like the the, the energy of youth, I guess. I'm still quite young, but I was younger then. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have complicated and sometimes mixed feelings about being in the military, but it is inarguable that the military showed me how to do things I, I never in a million years would have thought I was capable of.
0: Ian, where is the best place for someone to pick up your book? I know it's coming out soon, or as I said, whenever we release this podcast, uh, would you like someone to get it from your website or uh, where books are sold?
1: Uh, I Hopefully, where books are sold, if you have a local bookseller, if you're fortunate enough to live somewhere that has a local bookseller, great to support them, right? You're not going to pay any more than you would pay on Amazon or wherever, um, but local booksellers are wonderful organizations that um, need all the love that they can get. If that's not an option for you, then yeah, it's you know, sold on Amazon, stores, whatever, wherever books are sold.
0: Excellent. Uh, to our listeners, I hope you like, share, subscribe and ring the bell on YouTube, uh, help support VBC and this podcast, The Scuttlebutt, but I uh, also uh, equally hope that you support Ian Fritz and his book, What the Taliban Told Me. Ian, I want to thank you so much for your time today, for your truth. I know that uh, I love doing this podcast because... Uh, I think it's very different than sort of like the CNNs or where you go for like, you know, sort of these, uh, you know, bits of like interviews. I feel like we can really dive into some nitty gritty stuff. And I just really enjoyed my time with you today. And I'm going to take this with me for quite a while.
1: Yeah, no, thank you so much. And thanks for all the thoughtful questions and, and for your time. <laughs>
0: Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Tobacco Free Adagio health Uh, tobacco-free adagio health has been supporting the podcast for quite some time now we've been so pleased to be uh, supported by them they are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke they're all about health so they want people to quit Uh, they have classes nicotine replacement therapy and a popular quit line 1-800-QUIT-NOW they also educate people children especially about tobacco use from cigarettes cigars pipes chew snuff and other nicotine products like vaping and finally tobacco-free adagio health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all about what Tobacco-Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Or you can check out the two Scuttlebutt episodes that featured Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. We had a wonderful representative come on to the podcast, talk to us about all the classes and therapies that they offer. Uh, It was one two wonderful conversations, so I definitely direct you to both of those if you want more information, or just call their free quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Thank you again, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health, for your support.